This is an ABC podcast. Tape application. This is Great Moments in Science, recorded on the 4th of March 1983 in the Baidu. Today, Dr. Carl here. And in a very big shift, today's theme is nostalgia. Loyal listener. After a marathon run on ABC radio and podcast, this episode, right here, right now, is the final episode of Great Moments in Science, at least as we know it. I'll still be talking all things science, just in different locations and formats. There's the radio Science with Dr. Carl every week, with my friend Lucy Smith on Triple J. There's the Science with Dr. Carl podcast as well as half a dozen live radio Q&A sessions around Australia. And other Great Moments in Science have morphed across to the interwebs on ABC, Instagram, TikTok, and more to come. Way, way back in 1981, I started on ABC Radio. And I've been with you all the way from wireless to the World Wide Web. We present a great moment in science. Today... We're going to take a trip back in time. Back to when I first called up Triple J to say I wanted to talk about the space shuttle launch because I'd applied to be an astronaut with NASA. What is your name? Carl Krushelnitsky. Obviously you've been involved in studying for quite a long time. With any special purpose in mind? Number one, it's better than watching colour TV after a while. I don't think it's a bad idea to rearrange the neurons inside your brain with regard to getting knowledge. Originally, I was chasing knowledge with regard to the thrill of getting the extra knowledge and being able to use it. As I've grown older, I've wanted to use it more with regard to my fellow human beings. This probably parallels my change from an introvert to an extrovert. I want to use the knowledge that I've got with regard to human beings. So originally I started off in the hard sciences, which was, say, metal physics, and then gradually drifted through the biosciences and then have come right over on the other side of the fence in the life sciences with regard to medicine. We present a great moment in science. Science. It all began when we were trying to cover, on live radio, the very first launch of the space shuttle back in 1981. And it didn't go ahead because there was a problem with a fuel cell. Everybody looked at me, and I was able to explain, thanks to my studies, what a fuel cell was. Basically, it's a box that if you put fuel into it, like hydrogen, will give you electricity. As long as you put in fuel, it'll give you electricity. Everybody was happy. We then came back a week later, and on this occasion, the space shuttle launched successfully. Hooray. Now we're out the back having a cup of tea, and one of the producers said, I really need this cup of hippie tea because it will clean my kidneys. Well, that raised hackles with me because I've been studying the kidneys in physiology in both medicine and biomedical engineering. And I said, look, excuse me, I think you might be a little bit wrong. In fact, it goes the other way around. It's not that the tea cleans your kidneys, but rather rather that your kidneys filter out of your blood, and they do this on a quarter of a tonne of blood every day, that's a huge volume and weight, they filter out 1,500 grams of salt at a huge metabolic cost, and then put it all back in, except for 80,000th of a gram, 
which appears in your urine. And the reason that we go through this incredibly expensive metabolic loop is because evolution and God made a mistake, and we humans are basically fish gone wrong. There was silence, and then the producer said, we need you for Great Moments in Science, which at that time was a Double J presenter playing music to black and white movies on Channel 10 on Saturday afternoons. What is a pseudo-gravitational field? A genuine gravitational field corresponds to a curvature of space. In all our knowledge, this is only generated by having a huge mass, many zillions of tonnes. What we were trying to do was to try and generate a gravitational field without having this huge mass. In other words, by having a small portable device of some sort, or not even portable, but a smaller device than a mountain that could generate a gravitational field as big as a mountain. Our follow-up to our experiments in gravity was to try and get some way of, metaphorically, grabbing gravity by the scruff of the neck. That is to say that you... Instead of wasting the huge gravitational energy that you have when you are actually at a height of many hundreds of miles or kilometres above the Earth's surface, instead of wasting that energy as heat, you then put it into your magic gravity battery, which you might buy from KTEL, and then having got this battery, you then plug it to a spaceship on the ground and very quietly and silently it uses all this stored energy to float up into space. We've talked about all sorts of things in Great Moments in Science from space and gravity to medical and technological marvels to naughty bits. You've probably heard of Rubik's wrist, which comes from twisting a cube for too hard and too often. Also, there's Hoover's depression or inflation. This was first noted with four men who suffered injuries from the fan blades inside the suction parts of vacuum cleaners. And the parts of their anatomy to which they suffered the injuries are what we call in medical terms the naughty bits. What were they putting their bloody naughty bits into a hoover for? Well, I think they said it was an accident. They were vacuuming in the nude and they fell over and would you believe their naughty bits just happened to fall inside the vacuum cleaner and got sucked up by the rest of it and got stuck and the fan blades chopped the ends off a little bit. Another one is disco digit which comes from excessive finger snapping and that leads to the finger and the thumb becoming really swollen and, and sore and so you can't use it for anything. We present a great moment in science. science. What has well-boiled shark got to do with artificial skin? And so what if it exists anyway? Now the advantage of artificial skin is that you can use it to treat people who have got burns to a large part of their body. It's very frustrating dealing with people who have these burns because they turn up with the burns and they're quite normal. You can talk to them, they can drink, they can eat, they can smoke a cigarette, and yet within 10 or 20 hours, they'll be heading for a raging fever and possibly death. And the reason is that the skin that you're normally supplied with at birth stops water from leaving the body and it stops infections from getting in. So any artificial skin has to be able to duplicate the properties of real skin. But how are they going to make it? Well, firstly, they start off with cowhide. And they boil the cowhide up and they get a solution of collagen. This provides the structure. And they blend this solution of collagen with powdered shark cartilage. Now, as you know, the shark doesn't have any bones in it. The skeleton, in fact, is made of cartilage. And so the shark is made of cartilage, muscle, and at one end there's a huge mouth with lots of teeth in it. Having got this blend of powdered shark and, and cow... They then freeze-dry it after it's been well-boiled. 
They then pour it out into a frying pan, or in fact a large stainless steel frying pan, and you end up with a sheet of this material. You bake the sheet, and this gives it its shape. It also sterilizes it. Then finally, you bond it to that wonderful material, silicon rubber, you freeze dry it, you put it in a plastic pack, and then you send it around the world to where they need it. Many people who are involved in the health sciences claim that the more live food that you eat, the better it is for you. Now, this is not always very easy in all parts of the animal kingdom. For example, there are six types of snake that have had to develop teeth that hinge on a little hinge made of connective tissue. So they swallow their live food, and like which might be a rat, for example, and when the rat tries to wriggle out through the mouth, the teeth are folded over the other way so that they block it in. Another example of a problem associated with eating live food comes when you consider the cane toad, which is advancing into New South Wales from Queensland, and the scarab beetle, or the dung beetle. Now, the dung beetle is called the scarab beetle because it was worshipped by the Egyptians. And the scarab part of its name comes from the fact that it would roll up a little bit of cow dung and roll it along the ground just as the Egyptian gods would roll the sun through the sky. Now, the dung beetle is harmless to humans. It's got little legs all on the outside of it, and you can put it in the palm of your hand and it'll just wriggle around. Now, what happens is that the cane toad comes along and eats the dung beetle. And the dung beetle then, with its little legs on the side of its body, walks out through a hole that it makes in the side of the cane toad. This bothers the cane toad so much that it dies. So if you think that we humans have troubles with eating live food, such as bean sprouts and yoghurt, think what sort of problems we would have if we were swallowed by a cane toad. Normally, the space shuttle lands at Cape Canaveral. However, there are a few reasons for having alternate landing sites. One is that they might have a faulty takeoff. Another one might be that there's some sort of emergency in space so that they have to land very rapidly. Another one is that the weather at their ordinary landing strip at Cape Canaveral might not be very good. There might be fog, there could be rain, or in today's modern times, it could even be war declared and somebody might want to shoot the thing down. Now, it turns out there's only about half a dozen landing strips in the world that are suitable for landing the space shuttle. Now, there are lots of landing strips that are longer than three kilometres. In fact, five kilometres is preferable. But then you're stuck with the problem of how you get the thing back to Cape Canaveral to shoot it up into the air again. Well, that's easy. You just put it on the back of a 747. But there aren't many airports that have got huge cranes suitable for lifting the space shuttle, which weighs about 100 tonnes, onto the back of a 747. Now, the other alternative is that you put it on an aircraft carrier, but then you need a landing strip which is close to a large ocean port. So it turns out that there are only six good landing sites in the world. Three of them are in the USA, at Cape Canaveral, Edwards in um, California, and one in New Mexico, and then three overseas, one in Hawaii, one in Okinawa, and one in Spain. You've heard of the luminous fish which attract their food to them via the light, such as, say, the angelfish of the ocean depths. But there is another fish which uses light to avoid being eaten. Consider two cases. 
In the first case, we have a fish swimming, say, 100 metres under the surface of the water. Then a bigger fish, which wants to eat it, when it looks down upon that fish, really won't see it very well at all because it's a dark fish against a dark background. But consider the opposite case. When you have a small fish swimming just underneath the surface of the waves, underneath the surface of the water, then the bigger fish, which would like to eat it, can look up and see the silhouette of the small fish against the much lighter background. Well, the pony fish of Indonesia looks like a beam of light, like a little glitter or a random reflection. It's managed to somehow con these parasitic bacteria which emit light to come and live inside the pony fish, inside a special organ near the throat. And then via little channels, it beams this light out from the underbelly so that when a predator fish, which is swimming deeper in the water, looks up towards the surface of the water, all it sees is a random reflection, just a little bit of glitter floating around. Now, mind you, it would be a disadvantage if the pony fish continued to emit light at night time. And so it has a special little iris which regulates the amount of light, letting out the most light during the middle of the day, gradually decreasing it towards sunset and switching it off entirely for night time. We know that the moon has many effects on our lives. It affects the rainfall, it affects the tides, it affects menstruation of women, it even affects the earnings of cab drivers. And it also affects seeds, such as you plant in the garden. In fact, if you get seeds and put them in the dark, you'll find that they still have a very basic metabolism. They still consume small amounts of oxygen. But these amounts of oxygen are so minute that you have to use very sensitive instruments. Now, the oxygen consumption is at its greatest in the morning. And it's also at its much greatest in the morning of the full moon and also on the morning of the new moon. That is to say, the oxygen consumption of seeds increases at 15-day intervals. And this occurs mainly for tomatoes and for sunflower seeds. Now, the Chinese market gardeners plant tomatoes at specific phases of the moon, but they don't do it with all plants. For example, they don't do it with watermelons. So it appears as though there's quite a bit in the old gardener's folklore that certain plants should be planted at certain phases of the moon. If humans are ever to get to the stars using our present state of technology, we're going to have to have suspended animation. Suspended animation is like a sub-zero hibernation. Suspended animation has been tried in California, and sure, it's easy to freeze people, but when you unfreeze them, all you get is a yucky mess. The trouble is that when the water freezes and turns from water to ice, it expands. If you fill a bottle with water and put it in the deep freeze and come back a few hours later, you'll have a lump of ice in the shape of a bottle and a whole lot of lumps of glass lying around inside the deep freeze compartment. In plants and animals, if the ice crystals form inside the cell, they expand and they burst the cell and they destroy the cell. Now, some Japanese researchers had a good look at the flower buds of various rhododendron species plants, and they think they've finally found out a mechanism for suspended animation. The flower bud seems to have two parts, an outer protective part, the bud scale, and an inner part where the tender young infant flowers live, 
to floor it. Now, using very small temperature probes, they found that as the temperature drops, somehow, by an unknown fashion, the water leaves the inner floret and goes to the outer bud scales. And this means that the sap inside the floret becomes more concentrated. It seems to act like some sort of antifreeze. And as the temperature keeps on dropping, the antifreeze gets more concentrated, so you get no ice crystals formed. By the time you get down to minus 30 degrees C, there's absolutely no water left, and the floret is almost paper dry, so it's totally resistant to any low temperatures. On the other hand, the bud scales on the outside have got a much tougher job. They're copying all the water from the floret. And the ice crystals did form, but there was another mechanism so that the ice crystals didn't form inside the cells of the bud scales, they formed between the cells. And then when they increased the temperature, the whole process reversed. The ice melted, turned into water, and once again, by some unknown fashion, the water moved from the outer part of the bud back to the inner part. Now this is all very well for flowers, because flowers are a fairly simple life form. However, an animal is much more complicated. The people in California who were involved in cryogenics did not succeed in freezing people with incurable diseases. If we do come up, however, with suspended animation, you could, for example, travel through the universe. You could sleep through World War III. If you slept for nine years out of ten, you could expect to live for 700 years. And if you were really very lucky, you could even sleep through the recession. If you've seen any number of science fiction movies, sooner or later you get to the scene where the scientists complain about the bug in the computer. They're not referring to a spying device, and they're not referring to little insects. In computer terms, a bug is some sort of fault in either the electronics or in the program that causes the program to do something that you didn't want it to do. However, back in 1945, there didn't exist a word for this sort of fault. In August in 1945, they were working with the Mark I, a valve computer that's the granddaddy of all the electronic computers that we have today. A valve kept on blowing, and every time that they would put in a replacement valve, that new valve would also pop. Finally, they did a visual inspection, and using tweezers, they removed a two-inch moth, which had been electrocuted and which was causing a short circuit in the computer. This is the origin of the word that we use today, a bug in the computer. And now that bug has been immortalised. The remains of the moth are sticky taped to a page in the logbook corresponding to that night in August. And the logbook is in the Naval Surface Weapons Centre in Washington in DC. Muzak is piped music. You'd never hear Muzak on Triple J, but on the other hand, I think it's good to know the enemy. Muzak is non-entertainment music. It's psychological music. It's designed to neutralise you, to make you a good worker for the company. So if you're working a nine-to-five shift, you tend to feel down at half-past ten and half-past three. So at these times, Muzak is really stimulating. On the other hand, at lunchtime, you tend to be really high. So the Muzak is designed to calm you down. Muzak is listened to by 80 million people every day in 125 countries around the world. In the White House, in the Pentagon, 
in Japanese police stations, in a 39-storey high-rise cemetery in Rio de Janeiro, in reptile houses in zoos around the world, in shops, in lifts, in aeroplanes, in motels. This psychological music first began in the early 1940s when they discovered that military marches led to an increase in productivity. Muzak is broadcast by cable in Australia and in America by FM and by satellite, which is a rather ridiculous use of high technology. The Muzak company offers four main programs. Office, travel, another one for public areas and another one for industrial areas. The legal brothels in Germany choose to use the light industrial program. Now, I'm not too sure whether this is either to increase the workers' productivity or whether it's to relax the customers. In about 10 or 20 years or so, if you're unlucky enough to lose an arm or a leg, you could very well grow back another one using electricity. Now salamanders, frogs and lizards, they can all grow back arms and legs to different degrees. For example, if you get a salamander, and then you explain to the salamander what you're going to do, you get a signed consent form, you give him a cup of tea, and then you anaesthetise him, and then very gently amputate the limb, you can measure an intense current leaking out of that stump. This current is called the stump current, and it's in the shape of a cone, and for you techno-freaks, its value is about 50 microamps per square centimetre. Now frogs are not quite as lucky as salamanders. They don't regenerate arms and legs so well and they've got a smaller stump current. Now if you artificially increase that stump current with a tiny hearing aid battery, you can increase the growth and you get lovely looking bone, muscle, cartilage, blood vessels, everything, just peachy. On the other hand, if you decrease that stump current by running the hearing aid battery backwards, not only do you get no growth, you even get degeneration of the stump. Now, so far, the theoreticians think that these electrical fields are sort of coarse, long-range signals saying, grow a limb in this direction or that direction. They're not detailed instructions like you find in the DNA. Now, to bring it down to humans, let's look at kids. Kids seem to have this habit of amputating their fingertips through some accident or other. Now, the old method was to sew it on again with needle and thread. Now there's a new method at the Royal Hallamshire Hospital in Sheffield, in the United Kingdom. They simply bandage on the amputated fingertip and it grows back like new. It even has fingerprints. Now if you measure the stump current, you find that it's only about 70% of the value that you can measure in a salamander and that it's only happening on kids. That the stump current only lasts for a few days and that it dies down. And finally, that you get regrowth only on the very tips of the fingers, not on the whole arm. Now there's a few other places in the human body where these electrical currents are useful. For example, around a wound, you can measure an electrical current coming out as the wound is healing. Now electrical fields are also being used to heal broken bones. 
For example, 10% of broken shin bones won't heal without electrical stimulation. And what the doctors do is connect a battery across the broken bone for about a year or so. And this stimulates bone regrowth. Scientists have been finding moon rocks and Mars rocks down in the Antarctic. It turns out that Antarctica is a really good place to go looking for meteorites. Part of the reason is that Antarctica is like a giant flattened cone of ice, about three kilometres high in the centre, that's near the South Pole, and about 4,000 kilometres from one coastline to another. Ice doesn't stay in one spot, it flows very slowly. In fact, it flows from the South Pole downhill to the coastline. So meteors fall on the Antarctic ice, just like they do on the rest of the planet. Some stay on the surface, but most of them get trapped a few metres down. The meteors move with the ice, and after a few million years, most of the meteors reach the coastline. In a few parts of Antarctica, there are rocky mountains near the coast. The ice slowly flows around the mountain, but most of the meteorites are dumped there. So the ice acts like a giant conveyor belt, carrying the meteorites from the inland wastes down to the mountains that are near the coast. A meteor which dives deep into the ice, say near the South Pole, is squirted by the moving ice onto the surface when it gets near a mountain. If a meteor dives even a few centimetres into soil anywhere else on the planet, it's virtually lost forever. And unlike the rest of the planet, the meteors show up really nicely against the white background of the ice. So all of this makes it easier to find meteorites in the Antarctic. The scientists use sterile collecting procedures to get these meteorites, the same sterile procedures as was used by the Apollo astronauts on the moon. And then they send them back, still frozen, to NASA's Johnson Space Center in Houston. It makes sense to keep them clean because the Antarctic is probably the cleanest and coldest place on our planet. Altogether, the scientists have found about 5,000 separate meteorites. Most of them are stony meteorites, which are already quite common, but they've also found one nickel-iron meteorite with small diamonds inside it. It's only the second such meteorite with diamonds inside it ever found. And in 40 carbonaceous-type meteorites, they've found traces of 20 different amino acids. And they've dated these amino acids to being 4.5 billion years old which is a whole one billion years older than the oldest traces of life found on our planet. They've found one rock which they're sure came from the moon because when they looked at it very carefully under a microscope, it had exactly the same microstructure as moon rocks. And in fact, even recently, they've found four rocks which most probably came from Mars. But then this raises even more questions than it's given us answers. How did these moon rocks and Mars rocks get to Earth? An easy and popular theory is that a large lump of rock hit the Moon, or Mars, at very high speed and then splashed off bits of Moon rock, or Mars rock, which then floated around space for a bit and then eventually landed on Earth. Fair enough. The trouble is, we'd expect to see some traces of this enormous impact inside the rocks that we get from the Antarctic. Some sort of stress fractures or melting or anything. But there's no abnormal signs.
the average person's listening taste seems to be the summation of all the things that they've heard combined with their prejudices divided by the amount of time they've got to listen with. I've had an amazing time and learnt so much making and then sharing these great moments in science with you. Thanks for listening. And big thanks to the dozens of creative producers and engineers who have brought the show to you for nearly half a century. I'll catch you on live radio, including Science with Dr. Carl Live, and of course on podcast and all the other social media and even IRL in real life. And remember, science is a way to not get fooled. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.